Volume Two, Part Six of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Six. So the herald went to carry this message to Darius. But the Scythian kings were filled with anger when they heard the word slavery. They then sent the division of the Scythians to which the Saromate were attached, and which was led by Scopasus, to speak with those Ionians guarding the bridge over the Ister. As for those of the Scythians who remained behind, it was decided that they should no longer decoy the Persians, but attack them whenever they were foraging for provision. So they watched for the time when Darius's men were foraging, and did as they had planned. The Scythian horse always routed the Persian horse, and when the Persian cavalry would fall back in flight on their infantry, the infantry would come up to their aid, and the Scythians, once they had driven in the horse, turned back for fear of the infantry. The Scythians attacked in this fashion by night as well as by day. Very strange to say, what aided the Persians and thwarted the Scythians in their attacks on Darius's army was the braying of the asses and the appearance of the mules. For, as I have before indicated, Scythia produced no asses or mules, and there is not in most of Scythia an ass or a mule, because of the cold. Therefore the asses frightened the Scythian horses when they brayed loudly, and often, when they were in the act of charging the Persians, the horses would shy in fear if they heard the asses bray, or would stand still with ears erect, never having heard a noise like it or seen a like creature. The Persians thus gained very little in the war for when the Scythians saw that the Persians were shaken, they formed a plan to have them remain longer in Scythia, and remaining be distressed by lack of necessities. They would leave some of their flocks behind with the shepherds, moving away themselves to another place, and the Persians would come and take the sheep, and be encouraged by this achievement. After such a thing had happened several times, Darius was finally at a loss, and when they perceived this, the Scythian king sent a herald to Darius with the gift of a bird, a mouse, a frog, and five arrows. The Persians asked the bearer of these gifts what they meant, but he said that he had only been told to give the gifts and then leave at once. He told the Persians to figure out what the presents meant themselves, if they were smart enough. When they heard this, the Persians deliberated. Darius's judgment was that the Scythians were surrendering themselves and their earth and their water to him, for he reasoned that a mouse is a creature found in the earth, and eating the same produce as men, and a frog is a creature of the water, and a bird particularly like a horse, and the arrows signified that the Scythians surrendered their fighting power. This was the opinion declared by Darius, but the opinion of Gobirus, one of the seven who had slain the magus, was contrary to it. He reasoned that the meaning of the gifts was, unless you become birds, Persians, and fly up into the sky, or mice and hide in the earth, or frogs and leap into the lakes, you will be shot by these arrows and never return home. The Persians reasoned thus about the gifts. But when the first division of the Scythians came to the bridge, the division that had first been appointed to stand on guard by the Maetan lake, and now had been sent to the Ister to speak with the Ionians, they said, Ionians, we have come to bring you freedom, if you will only listen to us. We understand that Darius has directed you to guard the bridge for sixty days only, and if he does not come within that time, then go away to your homes. Now then, do what will leave you guiltless in his eyes as in ours. Stay here for the time appointed, and after that leave. So the Ionians promised to do this, and the Scythians made their way back with all haste. 
but after sending the gifts to Darius, the Scythians who had remained there came out with foot and horse and offered battle to the Persians. But when the Scythian ranks were set in order, a rabbit ran out between the armies, and every Scythian that saw gave it chase. So there was confusion and shouting among the Scythians. Darius asked about the clamor among the enemy, and when he heard that they were chasing a rabbit, he said to those with whom he was accustomed to speak, These men hold us in deep contempt, and I think now that Gobirus' opinion of the Scythian gifts was true. Since then my own judgment agrees with his, we need consider carefully how we shall return to safety. To this Gobirus said, O king, I understood almost by reason alone how difficult it would be to deal with these Scythians, but when I came here I understood even better, watching them toying with us. Now then, my advice is that at nightfall we kindle our campfires in the usual way, deceive those in our army who are least fit to endure hardship, and tether all our asses here, and ourselves depart, before the Scythians can march straight to the Ister to break up the bridge, or the Ionians take some action by which we may all be ruined. This was Gobirius's advice, and at nightfall Darius followed it. He left the men who were worn out, and those whose loss mattered least to him, there in the camp, and all the asses too tethered. His reasons for leaving the asses, and the infirm among his soldiers, were the following. The asses, so that they would bray, the men, who were left because of their infirmity, he pretended were to guard the camp while he attacked the Scythians with the fit part of his army. Giving his order to those who were left behind, and lighting campfires, Darius made all haste to reach the Ister. When the asses found themselves departed by the multitude, they brayed the louder for it, and the Scythians heard them and assured that the Persians were in the place. But when it was day, the men left behind perceived that Darius had betrayed them, and they held out their hands to the Scythians and explained the circumstances. They, when they heard this, assembled their power in haste, the two divisions of their horde and the one division that was with the Saramate and Budini and Galani, and made straight for the Ister in pursuit of the Persians. And as the Persian army was for the most part infantry and did not know the roads, which were not marked, while the Scythians were horsemen and knew the shortcuts, they went wide of each other, and the Scythians reached the bridge long before the Persians. There, Perceiving that the Persians had not yet come, they said to the Ionians, who were in their ships, Ionians, the days have exceeded the number, and you are wrong to be here still. Since it was fear that kept you here, now break the bridge in haste, and go, free and happy men, thanking the gods and the Scythians. The one that was your master we shall impress in such a way that he will never lead an army against any one again. Then the Ionians held a council. Miltiades the Athenian, general and sovereign of the Chersoniates of the Hellespont, advised that they do as the Scythians said and set Ionia free. But Histaeus of Miletus advised the opposite. He said, It is owing to Darius that each of us is sovereign of his city. If Darius's power is overthrown, we shall no longer be able to rule, I in Miletus or any of you elsewhere, for all the cities will choose democracy rather than despotism. When Histaeus explained this, all of them at once inclined to his view, although they had at first sided with Miltiades. Those high in Darius's favor who gave their vote were Daphnis of Abydos, Hippoclus of Lampsacus, Herophantus of Perium, Metrodorus of Proconesius, Aristagoras of Cyzicus, Ariston of Byzantium, all from the Hellespont and sovereign of cities there, and from Ionia, Stratus of Chios, Echius of Samos, Laudamus of Phocia, and Histaeus of Miletus, who opposed the plan of Miltiades. 
As for the Aeolians, their only notable man present was Aristagoras of Sime. When these accepted Histaeus's view, they decided to act upon it in the following way, to break as much of the bridge on the Scythian side as a bowshot from there carried, so that they seemed to be doing something when in fact they were doing nothing, and that the Scythians not tried to force their way across the bridge over the Ister, to say, while they were breaking the portion of the bridge on the Scythian side, that they would do all the Scythians desired. This was the plan they adopted, and then Histiaeus answered for them all, and said, You have come with good advice, Scythians, and your urgency is timely. You guide us well, and we will do you a convenient service. For, as you see, we are breaking the bridge, and will be diligent about it, as we want to be free. But while we are breaking the bridge, this is your opportunity to go and find the Persians, and when you have found them, punish them as they deserve, on our behalf and on your own. So the Scythians, trusting the Ionians' word once more, turned back to look for the Persians, but they missed the way by which their enemies returned. The Scythians themselves were to blame for this, because they had destroyed the horses' pasturage in that region and blocked the wells. Had they not done, they could, if they had wished, easily have found the Persians. But as it was, that part of their plan which they had thought the best was the very cause of their going astray. So the Scythians went searching for their enemies through the parts of their own country where there was forage for the horses and water, supposing that they too were heading for such places in their flight. But the Persians kept to their own former tracks, and so with much trouble they found the crossing. But as they arrived at night and found the bridge broken, they were in great alarm lest the Ionians had abandoned them. There was an Egyptian with Darius whose voice was the loudest in the world. Darius had this man stand on the bank of the Ister and call to Histaeus the Miletian. This the Egyptian did. Histaeus heard and answered the first shout, and sent all the ships to ferry the army over, and repaired the bridge. Thus the Persians escaped. The Scythians sought the Persians, but missed them again. Their judgment of the Ionians is, that if they are regarded as free men, they are the basest and most craven in the world. But if they are reckoned as slaves, none love their masters more, or desire less to escape. Thus have the Scythians taunted the Ionians. Darius marched through Thrace to Sestos on the Chersonesus. From there he crossed over with his ships to Asia, leaving Megabazus as his commander in Europe, a Persian whom he once honoured by saying among the Persians what I note here. Darius was about to eat pomegranates, and no sooner had he opened the first of them than his brother, Artabanus asked him what he would like to have as many of as there were seeds in his pomegranate. Then Darius said that he would rather have that many men like Megabazus than make all Hellas subject to him. By speaking thus among the Persians, the king honoured Megabazus, and now he left him behind, at the head of eighty thousand of his army. This Megabazus is forever remembered by the people of the Hellespont for replying, when he was told at Byzantium that the people of Chalcedon had founded their town seventeen years before the Byzantines had founded theirs, that the Chalcedonians must at that time have been blind, for had they not been, they would never have chosen the worst site for their city when they might have had the better. This Megabazus, now left his commander in the country, subjugated all the people of the Hellespont who did not take the side of the Persians. At the same time that he was doing this, another great force was sent against Libya, for the reason that I shall give after I finished the story that I am going to tell now. The descendants of the crew of the Argo were driven out by the Pelagasians who carried off the Athenian women from Broron. After being driven out of Lemnos by them, they sailed away to Lacedaemon, and there they camped on Tugatum and kindled a fire. 
Seeing it, the Lacedaemonians sent a messenger to inquire who they were and where they came from. They answered the messenger that they were Minre, descendants of the heroes who had sailed in the Argo and put in at Lemnos, and there begot their race. Hearing the story of the lineage of the Minye, the Lacedaemonians sent a second time and asked why they had come into Laconia and kindled a fire. They replied that, having been expelled by the Pelagasians, they had come to the land of their fathers, as was most just, and their wish was to live with their father's people, sharing in their rights and receiving allotted pieces of land. The Lacedaemonians were happy to receive the Minye on the terms which their guest desired. The chief cause of their consenting was that Tindiridae had been in the ship's company of the Argo. So they received the Minye and gave them land, and distributed them among their own tribes. The Minye immediately married, and gave in marriage to others the women they had brought from Lemnos. But in no time these Minye became imperious, demanding an equal right to the kingship, and doing other impious things. Hence the Lacedaemonians resolved to kill them, and they seized them and cast them into prison. When the Lacedaemonians execute, they do it by night, never by day. Now when they were about to kill the prisoners, the wives of the Minye, who were natives of the country, daughters of leading Spartans, asked permission to enter the prison and each converse with her husband. The Lacedaemonians granted this, not expecting that there would be any treachery from them. But when the wives came into the prison, they gave their husbands all their own garments, and themselves put on the men's clothing. So the Minye passed out in the guise of women dressed in women's clothing, and thus escaping, once more camped on the Tugitum. Now, about this same time, Therus, a descendant of Polynicus through Thesander, Tissamenus, and Otician, was preparing to lead out colonists from Lacedaemon. This Therus was of the line of Cadmus, and was an uncle on their mother's side to Aristodemus's sons Eurysthenes and Procles, and while these boys were yet children he held the royal power of Sparta as regent. But when his nephews grew up and became kings, then Therus could not endure to be a subject when he had had a taste of supreme power, and said he would no longer stay in Lacedaemon, but would sail away to his family. On the island now called Thera, but then called Caliste, there were descendants of Membliaris, the son of Pioceles, a Phoenician, for Cadmus, the son of Egenor, had put in at the place now called Thera during his search for Europa, and having put in, either because the land pleased him, or because for some other reason he desired to do so, he left on this island his own relation, Memblirius, together with other Phoenicians. These dwelt on the island of Caliste for eight generations before Theris came from Lacedaemon. It was these that Theris was preparing to join, taking with him a company of people from the tribes. His intention was to settle among the people of Caliste and not drive them out, but claim them as in fact his own people. So when the Minye escaped from prison and camped on Tegetum, and the Lacedaemonians were planning to put them to death, Theris interceded for their lives, that there might be no killing, promised to lead them out of the country himself. The Lacedaemons consented to this, and Theris sailed with three thirty-oared ships to join the descendants of Memblirius, taking with him not all the Minye but only a few, for the greater part of them made their way to the lands of the Pararite and the Cacones, and after having driven these out of their own country, they divided themselves into six companies, and established the cities of Leprium, Machistus, Phrixae, Phyrgis, Epium, and Nudium in the land they had won. Most of these were in my time taken and sacked by the Elians. As for the island Caliste, it was called Thera, after its colonist. But as Theris's son would not sail with him, 
his father said that he would leave him behind as a sheep among wolves, after which saying the boy got the nickname of Olicus, and it so happened that this became his customary name. He had a son, Aegeus, from whom the Agadae, a great Spartan clan, take their name. The men of this clan, finding that none of their children lived, set up a temple of the avenging spirits of Laius and Oedipus, by the instruction of an oracle, after which their children lived. It fared thus too with the children of the Agadae at Thera. So far in this story the Lacedaemonian and Therian records agree, for the rest we have only the word of the Therians. Grinus, son of Asinius, king of Thera, descendant of this same Therus, came to Delphi bringing a hedicomb from his city. Among others of his people, Batis, son of Polymnestus, came with him, a descendant of Euphemus of the Minyan clan. When Grinus, king of Thera, asked the oracle about other matters, the priestess's answer was that he should found a city in Libya. "'Lord, I am too old and heavy to stir. Command one of these younger men to do this,' answered Grinus, pointing to Battus as he spoke. No more was said then, but when they departed, they neglected to obey the oracle, since they did not know where Libya was, and were afraid to send a colony out to an uncertain destination. For seven years after this there was no rain in Thera. All the trees in the island except one withered. The Therians inquired at Delphi again, and the priestess mentioned the colony they should send to Libya. So, since there was no remedy for their ills, they sent messengers to Crete to find any Cretan or traveller there who had travelled to Libya. In their travels about the island, these came to the town of Itinus, where they met a murex fisherman named Corobius, who told them that he had once been driven off course by winds to Libya, to an island there called Plataea. They hired this man to come with them to Thera, from there, just a few men were sent aboard ship to spy out the land first, guided by Corobius to the aforesaid island Plataea. These left him there with provisions for some months, and themselves sailed back with all speed to Thera to bring news of the island. But after they had been away for longer than the agreed time, and Corobius had no provisions left, a Samian ship sailing for Egypt, whose captain was Coleus, was driven off her course to Plataea where the Samians heard the whole story from Corobius and left him provisions for a year. They then put out to sea from the island and would have sailed to Egypt, but an easterly wind drove them from their course, and did not abate until they had passed through the pillars of Hercules, and came providentially to Tartessus. Now this was at that time an untapped market. Hence the Samians, of all the Greeks whom we know with certainty, brought back from it the greatest profit on their wares except Sostratus of Aegina, son of Laodemus. No one could compete with him. The Samians took six talents, a tenth of their profit, and made a bronze vessel with it, like an argolic cauldron, with griffin's heads, projecting from the rim all around. They set this up in their temple of Hera, supporting it with three colossal kneeling figures of bronze, each twelve feet high. What the Samians had done was the beginning of a close friendship between them and the men of Cyrene and Thera. As for the Therians, when they came to Thera after leaving Corobius on the island, they brought word that they had established a settlement on an island off Libya. The Therians determined to send out men from their seven regions, taking by lot one of every pair of brothers, and making Battus leader and king of all. Then they manned two fifty-oared ships and sent them to Plataea. End of Volume 2, Part 6